All right, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. I'll read and then pray. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice come from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, we are so excited to be in this book together. Lord, we are so excited for this text. We are so excited for what you have to say to your people. God, we ask that in this time, you would teach, that you would lead. Holy Spirit, that you would come and apply the words of God to our hearts in only the way that you can. None of us, Lord, want to hear from a man. We want to hear from you. God, would you teach us and would you lead us in this time? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe you have walked into the middle of a conversation and having no context for how the conversation got to the point you were witnessing, you realize that you have no idea what people are talking about. You try to participate, but you're lacking the context. Or maybe you've shown up late to a movie and you've missed that crucial first five or 10 minutes, and now you're confused. No matter what happens, no matter who tries to explain it to you, you've missed these crucial moments in the story that help to inform what's happening. Well, this morning, in this place, we are all that person. We are all that person walking into a story that has centuries of context, that we need to understand. The story that Mark tells, his entire gospel is deeply rooted in the story, the history of God's people. And so as 21st century Western thinkers, we are going to need to press pause and get caught up if we are going to experience the fullness of what God has and what Mark has for us today. So let's begin with Mark himself. Mark is the author of this gospel, but he was also known by the name John Mark. And John Mark was a traveling companion of both Paul and Peter. In fact, he is most famous outside of his gospel, most famously known as the man who broke up the band. He was the guy that 
Paul and Barnabas fought so much about that they actually went separate ways. Apparently, Mark had abandoned them, or at least withdrawn from them, as Luke tells us in Acts 15, in one of their missionary journeys. And so Barnabas wanted to take him along again, and Paul said, "Uh uh-uh. And they fought over it and they went their separate ways. But later on, we can be encouraged that God is a God of reconciliation. And in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, hey, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me. So Paul and Mark had eventually reconciled. But Mark was also a traveling companion of Peter. And there's an ancient historian named Papias. And Papias uh, interviewed not the apostles, but interviewed the apostles' like immediate disciples, the very next generation. And he passed down a tradition that Mark wrote down every story that Peter told. And then Mark compiled those stories, not just randomly, But he compiled those stories in such a way to tell a greater story, a much grander story, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, gospel simply means good news. But eventually, it became the name for an entire genre of biographical literature. But a gospel is not a biography as we classically understand it. See, Mark is not concerned with recording as much detail as possible, right? Mark is often considered the, uh, the gospel that's kind of um, ignored because Matthew and Luke record significantly more detail than Mark does, but Mark is not concerned with that. Mark is not concerned with the minutia. He's concerned with the grand narrative, this broader picture of Jesus that he's painting. The gospel of Mark is like a mosaic where each story has powerful meaning, but each story also works together to paint this bigger picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so our intention through our time in Mark is not only to apply the individual stories to our lives and to our worship, but to continue finding ourselves in the middle of God's grander story, in his work of redemption among his people. And so one of the key themes in Mark's gospel is exploring the confusion around Jesus' identity. Some theologians have called this confusion the messianic secret. See, as we'll see, Mark is very clear right up front. He is very clear about the identity of Jesus. But as we read Mark's gospel, we find that his identity is hidden from the majority of the characters. In fact, the only people who really know who Jesus is are demons in the gospel of Mark. And sometimes Gentiles, non-Jewish people, understand who Jesus is better than his own people who he came to save. And so we get to observe throughout the gospel of Mark, people wrestle with Jesus' actions and his identity. They wrestle with his power and his purpose. But as the reader, we understand right up front exactly who Jesus is. Mark tells us that he is the Christ the Son of God, and his story is good news for the whole world. See, these are significant terms. Christ, 
son of God. They're terms that we may be familiar with, but they have centuries of meaning and expectations at the time of Mark's writing. So Mark calls Jesus the Christ, right? Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. So Mark is calling Jesus the Messiah. He is identifying him as the anointed one. Now, uh, this word Messiah has been used throughout the Old Testament to refer to prophets and kings and priests as people who were specially anointed by God to perform a particular function, to perform a particular task in his story. And so Mark is is calling Jesus, identifying Jesus as this Messiah uh, in line with these people. But later on, this word began to become a technical term for the anointed one that God's people were waiting for. The, 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 the promised king from the line of David that God had told his people would come and reign on the throne forever. He would be anointed for this, to be the savior king. He would be the capital M Messiah. And so the people were waiting for this one to come. In the same way, the title son of God is not necessarily a divine title. It also was used as an honorific title for kings from the line of David. Again, God told David that his son would reign on the throne forever. And so the kings from David's line were often referred to as sons of God. But eventually, again, as they waited for this promised king, even this title also became an expectation for the coming king who would once and for all defeat God's enemies and reign on the throne forever. And so Mark is clear that Jesus is the one that God's people have been waiting for. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. For centuries, they were waiting for God to fulfill all of his promises to Israel. They'd been waiting. And so this means that the Jesus story does not just stand alone. It's not an isolated story, but it finds it's, it's more, it's, it's more like a sequel, right? And it finds its meaning as one part of this epic series. And so Mark roots his readers in the story by beginning with a quote from Israel's past. Now I'll be honest. I watch way too much TV. And I really wish that I could tell you that it was all documentaries and educational, but it's all pretty mindless stuff, really. It's just my time to like check out. And TV, the, 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 the way people tell stories on TV has changed in the last couple of decades. With the, uh, the streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, it not only changes the way we watch TV, but it changes the way we tell stories. Episodes of a television show no longer have to be these self-contained stories that are uh, uh, appropriate for syndication. They're, they're not just these stories that can stand alone, but now they connect to every episode that, that came before it. And oftentimes these episodes will begin with a phrase like previously on Breaking Bad or the first show I ever binge watched was previously on Lost, right? 
Any lost fans? Uh, right, I see some hands going up. Okay, so these these are incredibly helpful storytelling tools that the screenwriters and directors use to give us a sequence of scenes from previous episodes that will be relevant for the episode we're about to watch. Now, here's the thing. This was not invented by 21st century screenwriters. Mark... 2,000 years ago, is doing this. And he does it by saying, in fulfillment of Isaiah the prophet, those words and then the scenes that he will describe are giving us a flashback to Israel's history, to relevant moments that are going to be important for the story that he's telling us today. And so though only Isaiah is cited, Mark quotes a passage from Malachi as well. And what they will tell us is that what we need to know about Israel's history is we need to know specifically about their relationship to the wilderness. You see, Isaiah writes in a time leading up to the exile into Babylon. The Israelites had been unfaithful to God. And so he told Isaiah that he was going to remove them from the land for a season but he would eventually bring them back. And so Isaiah says that this return from exile would be reminiscent of Israel's exodus from Egypt when God himself prepared the way for them through the wilderness. But Mark also quotes Malachi. And this happens often. Two prophets will be quoted, but the more prominent prophet will be named. So Mark names Isaiah, but he quotes Malachi 3.1 as well. See, Malachi was writing after the exile. Isaiah was before. Malachi was after the exile. And so what Isaiah had prophesied had come to pass. They had returned from the exile and were back in the land. But Malachi recognizes that things are not the same. Malachi recognizes that part of Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. They are back in the land, but something's missing. Something is still not right. They were no longer in Babylon, but they were also not experiencing the future that they had been promised. They were still under foreign rule. And so Malachi also reflects on Israel's wilderness wanderings after the exile. And so most commentators will recognize that Malachi has Exodus 23.20 in mind when he says this, Behold, I send an angel or messenger, same Hebrew word translated both ways. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And so in Exodus 23, God is telling Moses that he will send a messenger to prepare the way through the wilderness and into the promised land. And so he is looking for that day. Malachi is looking for that day when God would bring the people through the wilderness and into the promise. And so together, Mark uses these passages in his introduction to the gospel in order to give us the context for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A messenger is coming and this messenger will prepare the way for God himself to lead the people in a new exodus. Because after all these years, they are still wandering in a spiritual wilderness. And so this passage has wilderness all over it. 
right? The quote that Mark gives us is about the wilderness. John is in the wilderness. His clothing and his food are reminding us that he is a man of the wilderness. Jesus goes to John in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The wilderness is the primary context for understanding what is happening in the introduction to Mark's gospel. He is putting his readers back into the wilderness. And so if we're going to understand what Mark has for us, what Mark is saying about Jesus and what he came to do for God's people, we have to understand our, uh, our stories. We have to understand this story in the context of their relationship with the wilderness. And so Israel didn't have fond memories of the wilderness. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were complaining. They were hungry. All they had was this miraculous bread from heaven and they wanted something different, right? It was a difficult season. It was a painful season, but it wasn't all that bad. The wilderness wasn't a complete waste. See, it's in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of the covenant, The wilderness is the place where God made his covenant with his people. The covenant at Mount Sinai is more than than laws. It's more than just a sacrificial system so that their sins can be forgiven. At its heart, a covenant is about relationship. And so God makes a relationship with Israel in the wilderness. And this is a beautiful thing. And this is a thing that the Israelites would reflect on throughout their whole history. That the wilderness was the place of the covenant. God will be their God and they will be his people. It's where their relationship is established. But the wilderness is also the place where God's people are given an identity. Israel's identity as God's people is spelled out in the covenant. Not only are they God's people, not only is God their God, they're not just God's people like subjects in a kingdom, but some places in scripture say that Israel is God's firstborn son. That God called his son out of Egypt. And so in the wilderness, their identity, their sonship is declared. But the wilderness is also a place of testing and purification. Shortly after God made the covenant with them, they failed miserably. They worshiped a golden calf. They kept complaining. They they didn't trust God to give them uh, victory over their enemies. And so what should have been a short season in the wilderness at Mount Sinai to receive the law and agree to the covenant, the wilderness became this place of purification to ready the people for the future that God had for them. It became a place of wandering for 40 years before God brought them into the land. And so the wilderness is also, it became the path, the way to freedom. It was the place of the covenant. It was the place where God's people were given an identity. It was the place of testing and purification, but it was also the way to freedom. See, after Moses himself died, Joshua led the people through the wilderness, out of the wilderness, and into the promised land. And the border between the wilderness and the land was the Jordan River. And so we've got to log this away in our brains because it's going to be important. Another fun fact is the name Jesus is an English translation of the Greek name Jesus 
But Jesus is a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua is translated directly into English as Joshua. So Moses dies. Joshua leads God's people through the Jordan River. And now we have another Joshua, Jesus, on the banks of the Jordan River. Something crazy is going to go down. So see what God is doing. See what Mark is doing in this text. Mark says that the promises of Malachi and Isaiah, the promise of deliverance through the wilderness, is about to be fulfilled in the story that he is going to tell. The people are still in the wilderness, but a messenger is coming. Enter John the Baptist. Mark would be a genius filmmaker today. You can almost picture the the camera fading in on John's face as the quote from Isaiah is wrapping up. This is him. This is the guy. This is the messenger. This is the one that they have been waiting for who will prepare the way for God himself. God is coming. John appears in the wilderness and he calls all of Israel into the wilderness to be baptized in the Jordan River, to be immersed in the Jordan River. That's what baptism means. It means to be immersed. And so he's calling them into the Jordan River and he is calling them individually to relive the story of Israel on the banks of the same river that bordered the promised land. They're reliving the story of Israel individually, and they're doing so as an act of repentance. Now, repentance simply means to turn or to return. And so John is telling them to return to God by returning to their story, by returning to the wilderness. He's calling them to return. They return to the place where their identity was first established in order to remember their identity as God's people. They return to their relationship to God and they return to the hope that one day God would bring them into a future promise. See, when we talk about repentance, church, it's so much more than avoiding sin. Repentance is so much more than stopping the bad things that we do. It is a return to God. It's a return to the truth about God. And it's a return to the truth about who God has made you. See, if we only turn away from our sin, but do not turn to God, then all we do is modify our behavior. And if we don't turn away from the lies that we believe about God or the lies that we believe about ourselves, then we might stop that one particular sin, but it will only manifest itself in another way. We need to turn away from our sin and return to God, return to who he is, return to truth about him, and return to the belief in faith that he has made us what his word says says that we are. If we're only turning from our actions, we're not actually repenting. We're just modifying our behavior. And so Mark says that all of Israel and Judea are going out to John, returning to the wilderness as a picture of their return to God in preparation for the way of salvation. John is not the savior, but he is preparing the way. 
The one that is coming doesn't just baptize with water, but he baptizes in the Holy Spirit, literally immersing people into the presence and the power of God himself. John says that he is not even worthy to stoop down and remove the sandals from the one that is coming, from, uh, that is coming after him. There's a tradition, a Jewish tradition, that this task to remove the master's sandals was so degrading that it was only reserved for the lowest servant, and Jewish servants were not even allowed to perform this task. It was too menial. It was too degrading. And John said that he's not even worthy of that honor. That is how great, that is how magnificent, that is how wonderful the one is coming is. Remember, The one he's preparing the way for is God himself. And so as abruptly as John enters the scene, Jesus shows up on the banks of the river. The one whose sandals John is not worthy to stoop down and untie. God in the flesh. And so make no mistake, Mark knows exactly what he's doing. Mark is doing this on purpose. This is not accidental. Jesus is God in the flesh. The messianic king, the son of God, come to lead his people out of captivity through the wilderness and into freedom. And so John goes, uh, sorry, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John, not because he needs to repent. Jesus is sinless. He doesn't go into the wilderness to be baptized because he needs to repent, but he goes into the wilderness to be baptized to show them the way of repentance. Even though he is without sin, he is still our example in how to return to God. I've heard people say that Jesus is our example in all things except repentance because he's without sin. It is true that he is without sin, but he is still our example in how to return to God, to return to our identity, to return to who he is, and to return to what he has done for us. And so Israel, as they received their identity in the wilderness, here Jesus' identity is affirmed. He goes into the water. He comes out. The heavens are torn. The spirit descends and a voice from heaven says that Jesus is God's beloved son. It's the same identity that Mark declares in verse one, that he is the son of God. Like Israel, Jesus is declared to be the son of God in the wilderness. But unlike Israel, Jesus will embody this identity perfectly. And so to demonstrate The faithfulness of Jesus in contrast to Israel. The Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now this word, drive out, is the exact same word in the original language used to describe what Jesus does to demons. He drives them out. And so the Holy Spirit has this authoritative power over Jesus, though he was God in the flesh, yet he is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. He is our example in every way that though he's God, yet he still lives by the power of the Spirit. And so we follow Jesus in his way of life, repenting, turning to God and being completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so he drives Jesus out into the wilderness. Now, Mark doesn't give us the, uh, the, as much detail 
as Matthew and Luke do about what these temptations were or whether or not Jesus is victorious over them. And the reason for this is because Mark understands everything that will take place in the story from here on out as Jesus' trial and testing and temptations by Satan. His temptations are not just, he's not just victorious in this moment in the wilderness. He will demonstrate his victory in the entire story of Mark's gospel. This is just the beginning. And so these temptations are just the beginning. And in these temptations, he gives us another example to follow, to be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. Now this passage, I know this is a lot. This is a ton, right? But this is the beginning. We're getting deep into the context, right? But this story, this passage sets the stage for everything that Jesus will do throughout Mark's gospel. And it sets the stage for everything we are to know and understand about Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah. God himself come to save his people. He is the faithful Israelite whose identity is announced and confirmed in the wilderness. He is the spirit-empowered son of God who will deliver God's people from the oppression of sin and Satan, but he will do it in a way that nobody expects. They expected a king, but he comes as a sacrifice. They expected him to establish the kingdom on earth, but he's ransoming people out of the kingdom of sin and into a kingdom of freedom. But ultimately, Jesus didn't just submit himself to the waters of baptism on our behalf. He submit himself to a baptism through the grave, right? He didn't just pass through the Jordan, He passed through death. He died on the cross, passed through death, and three days later, he raised from the dead and into freedom. Jesus is our forerunner, not only into following God. He's our forerunner, not only through the wilderness, but he is our forerunner through death and into freedom. And so as the heavens were opened up to him in his baptism, the heavens have been opened up to us on the cross. And God uh, send his spirit onto us as Jesus received the spirit, as the spirit descended on him as a dove in his baptism because of the cross, because the veil in the temple was torn in two and we were given access to God. The spirit descends from heaven upon God's people and all who believe are declared children of God. And because of Christ, God is well pleased in us. Church, God is well pleased in you. If you want to know what your identity is, if you are in Christ, then the words that God speaks over Jesus in his baptism, he speaks over you. You are his child in whom he is well pleased because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Church, the way to freedom is to follow Jesus. He has delivered us out of slavery to sin and Satan, and he has given us the Spirit. And yet we still wait for the fullness of freedom in God's eternal kingdom. Church, we're still in the wilderness. We have not yet left the wilderness. Look, eventually, every Christian will experience a wilderness season. Everybody. 
And this isn't just a season of transition or difficulty. It's a season where everything you thought you knew is now a question mark. It's a season of transition. It is a season of difficulty, but it's also a season where we have no idea what the future holds. Everything is different and we don't know what will become. Sometimes the wilderness is brought on by suffering or loss. Sometimes it comes through doubts about God or doubts about your faith. Sometimes it comes because you know what you believe about God. You believe it to be true and yet your circumstances do not align with what you our, our believing is true. And so we go through this wilderness season. Some wilderness seasons last days, some last months, some last years. But the wilderness is not just a period of time. It's not just about waiting. It's not a parenthesis in life. Sometimes we approach this wilderness season like a parenthesis, like it's not as important as what came before or what came after. It's like an afterthought. And we're just waiting for it to be over so that we can get on with our normal life. But it's not less important. The wilderness is not less important than what is in your past. It's not less important than what will come after. God does some of his greatest work in seasons of the wilderness. And so since at least, at least March of 2020, the world has been in a wilderness Everything that is familiar is no more. And we, you know, we have hopes that things will go back to normal, whatever normal is. But we have no idea what that's going to look like or how long that's going to be. And so we follow Jesus into the wilderness, believing that no matter what is on the horizon, Jesus leads his people into freedom. And so church, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of what comes after coronavirus. We don't need to be afraid of what comes after this past election, the next election, anything. We don't need to be afraid because if we're following Jesus, we will experience wilderness, but we will experience freedom as well. And so church, Reality Carpinteria is in the wilderness. We're there right now. We were talking about this just a minute ago. We're literally outside of our beautiful building, right? The familiarity and the the safety of the past is no more. And we have no idea what this is actually going to look like. We have vision. We have hopes. We know we're going to follow Jesus, but we don't know what this is going to look like. And so we follow Jesus into the wilderness and into freedom. It's in this wilderness that we are learning our identity as a community of people following Jesus together. Perhaps we're coming out of the wilderness. Maybe we're not coming out of the wilderness. Maybe this is just beginning. Ultimately, we won't know what season this is until we have lived enough time to look back on it and to see what God has done. But if this is wilderness then we can be confident that God is going to reaffirm our identity in him, that we are children of God, that we are united to Christ. If this is wilderness, then God is going to give us a fresh filling, a fresh power from his Holy Spirit to lead us through it and to lead us into the next season. And if this is wilderness, then the only place to go is up. 
And he's leading us into the kingdom. He's leading us into the freedom. He's leading us into fruitful ministry and into joy. If you are following Jesus, he will lead you into wildernesses in life, but he will lead you through them and he will lead you into freedom. God is not distant in the wilderness. Some of you feel like your relationship with God was really close in the past and now he feels distant. But think about spiritual maturity the same way we think about physical maturity, right? Think about a newborn baby. A newborn baby doesn't have to do anything. Doesn't have to make any decisions. Doesn't have to, like, just can't, right? The, the parents literally do everything for the child. Sometimes that's how our new life in Christ feels. God makes it abundantly clear. You got to clean this up. You got to get rid of that. You got to start doing this. You got to like, and it's not because we're saved by those things, but we just recognize that, oh man, our life, our life needs to change because Jesus has come made his home in me. And God makes it abundantly clear, right? He leads us, takes us by the hand and things just like seem to, to be happening. But just as that child grows up, And the parents need to start entrusting to them decision-making power, especially as they begin uh, uh, preparing to leave the home. That child needs to make decisions based on what their parents have taught them. And so as we mature in faith, God allows us to make decisions based on what we know to be true. And it's in those opportunities that our character is revealed. See, God is not distant. He's just more patient than we are. God is not distant. He has not removed his presence from you. He's just allowing you to recognize in yourself what he already sees in you. A child of God, a redeemed, beloved son or daughter of God because of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our wildernesses, we feel oftentimes that we are distant from God but God is not distant from us. Sometimes in our wildernesses, we can feel like we've done something wrong, like God is mad at us, but God doesn't give us anything that we can't handle. And so if we find ourselves in the wilderness, it's not a sign of God's disapproval. It's a vote of confidence that he knows you will pass through onto the other side stronger, that you will pass through onto the other side in victory in Christ, that his Holy Spirit will guide you and lead you into freedom. It's in these wilderness seasons where God leads us into a reaffirmation of our identity in him. He gives us fresh confidence. He gives us fresh power for the season that he's calling us into. God is doing this in the wilderness. All of Christian life, if you think about it, is a wilderness. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you have been called out of the kingdom of Satan. And you have been called into a kingdom of freedom in God's eternal kingdom. And yet, we're somewhere in the middle. We're in transition. What we were, we are no longer. What we will be, we have not yet experienced. But we can be confident that Jesus knows the way. We can be confident that the way through the wilderness is to follow Jesus, that he is doing this, that he is guiding us, that we are in transition, but he will accomplish this in us. And so we wait on the Lord, but we don't sit idly by waiting for Jesus to return. We wait as John the Baptist waited. 
by declaring the coming of Jesus and demonstrating to the world what it looks like to return to God by following Jesus together. This is what God is calling us to, not only in this season, but in all of life. And let's pursue it together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not abandon us in the wilderness. Thank you that you don't call us into the wilderness to to be rid of us, but you call us into the wilderness because you want to reaffirm our identity as children of God. Jesus, thank you that you not only went into the waters of baptism, but you passed through the waters of death. You came out on the other side victorious. You have united yourself to us so that we can have confidence that if we have been baptized, in your name that we too will pass through death and into life. But God, we are in a season right now where it's difficult. We have all kinds of individual wildernesses represented by your people here in this place. God, I pray that you would give us confidence, that you would reaffirm our identity, that you would fill us fresh with your power and your spirit, and that you would lead us into freedom. God, we want to Uh, 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 thank you in spite of the wildernesses. Lord, we want to glorify you and rejoice in you no matter how difficult our wilderness seasons are. God, give us hope. Give us a future. Give us confidence in what you are preparing us for. And Lord, ultimately give us hope and confidence that one day what you are preparing us for is the new heavens, the new earth, to be physically present with Jesus in all things at all times. And Lord, we long for that day. God, we love you. We ask that you would help us to follow Jesus by being completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit in this place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.